Otherwise, you may have a smartphone as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Paul had earlier planted this church years before. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray as we get started. Father God, I I just thank you for giving us the privilege as a church to come together, to fellowship with one another, to worship together, to remember the death and resurrection of your son, first and foremost, that Good news, that gospel message that transforms hearts in the world today. I pray that uh, we would be a part of expanding your kingdom and your message throughout this world, throughout our neighborhoods and our country and to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray as we read through your word that you give us eyes and hearts to hear what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for a moment, put on your historical thinking caps. I don't know if there's any other history nerds here, but I certainly am. You are living in the first century, ancient Greek and Roman world. It's about 55, 56 AD. You're living in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. I noticed we haven't had any maps lately, so I thought uh, that might be helpful. I didn't want to deprive anybody, so we have a map here. You'll see where Corinth is in relation to Athens. It's like it's a, it's a port city. It's a very cosmopo- cosmopolitan city. We have an artistic rendering of what part of the city might have looked like. It's like the Duluth of the Mediterranean. It's, uh, there's a lot going on. And if you don't like to think of Duluth in February, pick any other port city of of importance. I I don't know why that came to mind immediately, but... Now, in the first century, this is controlled by the Romans, the Roman Empire. A few hundred years before that, it was the Greeks. This is the Greco-Roman era. And suffice to say, things are differently then than they are now in so many different ways. And one of the things that was different was instead of having the hundreds and thousands of different ways that we have now to get information and uh, enjoy entertainment and get together with people, communicate, one of the primary uh, ways that they did all of those things was to get together and celebrate, to eat together and have banquets together. And so in our day... Uh, We may enjoy 
attending a banquet or a dinner party uh, a few times a year, maybe for a wedding, maybe for some other special occasion. In the first century Roman Empire, everybody did this on a fairly frequent basis, whether you were rich, middle class, poor. Uh, there were so many different groups organized around maybe what your trade was, what, you, what your, prof- your profession was, what your... Um, ethnic uh, class was, or some other, where you lived, some other uh, common denominator, where people would get together on a regular basis, whether it was weekly or monthly or uh, somewhere in between, get together and have these banquets. They would eat together, they would exchange information, they would catch up on each other's life. If it was related to a trade or profession, they might learn something new. Um, And then they would also enjoy entertainment and and uh, sing together, all these different things that came together in what they celebrated as a banquet. So, even though that's a little different than how we operate today, that was the setting back then. And if you were in a trade or profession, uh, and you gathered together with other people in that trade, you may celebrate uh, that, the god, the Greek or Roman god of that trade. If you were in healthcare, uh, some of you may be aware of Asclepius, uh, um, the Greek god of, of healthcare, of healing, the staff and the rod. If you were a blacksmith or a metal worker, they had their own gods as well. The, the Roman god Vulcan was a, a god that they honored. And hundreds in between, for every different uh, profession and trade, people would get together, they would have a meal. They would honor this God, and they would uh, have speeches or entertainment or debate afterwards. And so imagine you get together, and, uh, and everything's very orderly. Where you sit when you get together is determined by your status within that group. The closer you sit to the host, the highly, the higher regarded you are. The farther away you sit, the, the lower in importance you are. And in fact, you wouldn't really sit. You would likely recline. There were these low-lying tables, and you would probably re- recline on your left arm and eat with your right. And during the meal, after the meal had finished, in almost all banquets the host would stand up and they would take some wine, pour it into a cup and pronounce a blessing to whatever Greek or Roman god they might celebrate, whether it's the god of a profession or Jupiter, which was one of the main Roman gods, or even the Caesar, who was seen as God's representative for the Romans on earth. And so they would pronounce a blessing over this cup, pour some of it out as a sacrifice, take a sip, and pass it to the right. And so then each member of the group would take a sip, repeat whatever had been said by the host, and pass it along to the right. This was very common, a very common custom in the first century Roman world. Okay, are you with me? Okay, now imagine you've been invited by a friend to a different gathering. Okay, your friend has said, 
this group is like anything you've ever seen before. Their life had been changed, had been impacted. I said, you got to come see. It's like any other celebration you've ever been to before, any other group that you would have experienced before. And so you come along. And you come to a larger house or a, a banquet hall. And you're greeted warmly. And you find this whole collection of people that meet together on a regular basis to celebrate the life of a tradesman turned teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, who had been killed actually a couple decades before. And your friend has said, there's amazing things going on. Lives are being changed. There's, uh, there were miracles. There are uh, people are being healed. There are incredible things going on. And so you come, you're warmly greeted. As is the custom, you would maybe take off your sandals and somebody meets you and washes your feet. But unlike the other banquets you had been to, it clearly wasn't a servant. And your friend tells you that, you know, a year ago or two years ago, if you would have come, there was some disunity among the group because when they got together, some people were eating before others and there wasn't uh, the harmony like uh, Jesus had taught was intended during these meals. But they had been working to sort that out and had been corrected. And with the help of some leaders, they had, uh, were really making the effort to meet and eat together how Jesus had taught. And so what you come in is you find this group And where you sit at the table has no relation to where you are in your class. Everybody gets the same thing to eat. There's no hierarchy. Slaves sit next to tradesmen, sit next to the rich. And it's unlike anything you have ever witnessed in this society. And after the meal, the host stands up. This is actually the same person who washed your feet earlier. The host stands up and they hold some flat bread in their hand, bread made without yeast. And they broke it. In repeating the words of Jesus, the host says, This is my body, broken for you. And then they pass it around the group. And next, the host takes the cup of wine, pours out some, and repeats the words of Jesus. This is my blood, poured out for you. And so instead of offering this on behalf of any other Greek or Roman god, or Jupiter, or the Caesar, this is offered, and this blessing is given on somebody the Roman Empire had executed some 25, 30 years earlier. Do you see how counter-cultural and radical this is? Are you with me? Do you see how counter-cultural a simple meal can be? 
And after this, they sang songs. They said prayers. They read out loud a a letter that had been passed around to these different Jesus movements. A letter from Paul, part of which we, we read from earlier. And so they would have they would have their own songs and entertainment and, and engagement, all in honor of Jesus of Nazareth, who had died, who had risen again, and who had created this movement that continued on in the decades following his death and resurrection. So if this was you in the first century, chances are you'd have a whole host of questions. What is this meal? What is this group of people coming together to commune with their God? What is this kingdom of God? Don't they worship Caesar as Lord? Or do they just worship this other one God? What is this communion and how does it impact lives? Fast forward to the present. If this is your first time in a church, and in a few moments we will celebrate communion as well. And you may have the very same questions. What is communion? And how does it impact people's lives? And for that matter, if you've been going to church ever since you were younger than you can remember, you very well may have that same question of why, why do we do this on a regular basis again? And how does it impact my life two days from now, three days from now? So we have the same questions that they may have had 2,000 years ago. So to examine these, we're going to look back into Scripture. Because the communion meal that we and other churches celebrate was first grounded in the Last Supper meal that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples on the night before he was executed. But we're going to go back even further because the Last Supper meal was most likely a Passover meal that the Jewish people had been celebrated for about 1,400 years before Jesus was executed. And so we're going to go back first to Exodus. So if, uh, well, you... Leave a finger in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Turn back earlier in your Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. And that's where we will continue on. Some of you may uh, know already from previous readings. Some of you may remember a series Jerry had done uh, a short while back on, on Exodus. But the Hebrew people end Genesis in Egypt because of a famine in their land. And so, by way of brief review, the Israelites are in Egypt. And during that time, uh, one of their own, Joseph, had been 
sold into slavery, had been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, brought down to Egypt. And even though he was falsely accused, even though he was imprisoned, eventually he got out. Eventually he found favor from the Lord in the eyes of the other Egyptians and eventually the Pharaoh. And so Joseph rose in prominence to be the second in command in Egypt. And so through God's uh, provision there, he was able to help um, feed his fellow brothers and countrymen and family in their time of need. And that's where Genesis ends. And so we begin Exodus over 400 years after that point. So Joseph has died. There's been several generations that have gone in since. And what we find is the Hebrew people are still in Egypt. They've actually become somewhat prosperous. And successive Egyptian kings, pharaohs down the line, eventually became threatened. And so they enslave the Hebrews. They force them into hard labor. And they they make them uh, slaves to, to build their own empire. And God raises up a prophet, Moses. Moses, who had actually grown up part of his years in Pharaoh's house, and then was exiled, God brings him back, and through a series of um, confrontations, Moses goes to the Pharaoh, and he repeats God's command that the Pharaoh must let his people go. And the Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he says, no, I'm not going to let these people go. They're building my empire. And there's a series of plagues that God brings down, whether flies or hail or gnats or turning the river into blood. There's a series of nine plagues that go, and, and in between each of them, Pharaoh initially relents, and then he changes his mind. And so by the time we come to Exodus 12, there has been this series of nine plagues, judgments, that God brought upon the Egyptians because of their enslavement of the Hebrews. And so God comes to Moses one last time, and he says, I have one final judgment, a tenth judgment to come upon the Egyptians. And he tells Moses, in order for your people to be saved. See, the judgment was that um, the firstborn in all of Egypt, whether it was a person or an animal, would be killed. From the rich to the poor, the firstborn would be killed. And God says, in order for that judgment to bypass the house of my people. You're to slaughter a lamb, take its blood, put it on the sides and the top of your door. And so we pick up the narrative in, uh, in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood at the, in the basin, and then put, put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe. 
None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides, on the top and the sides of the doorframe, and will pass over the doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. So that's where the Passover gets its name, that God's judgment would pass over the house of the Israelites because of the shed blood of the lamb that they put on the doors of their houses. And so somehow, through the death of the lamb, God takes out his justice on evil, which is right, but at the same time provides a way of escape through the blood. And in verse 26, And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. So as years went on, they were to remember the food, the drink, The stories and the songs and the symbols that accompanied the Passover Seder brought them back mentally to Egypt so that they too might participate in that event. The memory brought about by the meal allowed those who lived centuries later to experience it for themselves as if they were there themselves. It allowed those who lived centuries later to experience it for themselves as if they were there. Do you see how powerful that is? So fast forward 1,400 years, and we come to Passover in the first century. And what did Passover look like in the first century? Uh, Jewish people had been scattered all throughout the Mediterranean world at this point. And so there was some minor variation, and, and a lot of them would try to make it back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as it had been uh, called for in the law. Uh, but some of the, the leaders and rabbis at that time said there were basically three things that they needed to truly celebrate the Passover. Even if there were very minor differences, there were three things at least that were consistent. Number one, the unleavened bread. When the Israelites had left Egypt, God had said, basically, eat with your backpacks on. You don't have time to uh, make bread in the normal way. And so they made this unleavened bread. And in Passover, that was made again and again, the unleavened bread, the flat bread without, made without yeast. Number two, the bitter herbs. These were something that would literally bring tears to your eyes when you when you ate it, to remember the, the bitter hardship of slavery that they endured. And so think of like raw horseradish. If you just took a spoonful of this, it would just immediately physically make your eyes water. So bitter herbs was the second thing. The third thing, the eating of the lamb, whose blood was shed so that God's vengeance against evil would be passed over the house of the Israelites. 
So let's turn to one of the gospel accounts. Each of the four different gospels give us some account of what that last supper meal was like the night before Jesus was executed. They all have some variation of that. Uh, Since we've been in Luke, we'll look at a few verses in Luke as well. So turn to, to Luke 22. Luke 22 will begin in verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb has to, had to be sacrificed, came. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying to them, Go and make preparations for us to eat Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a water a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. I don't know if you can hear in those verses some of the measures and precautions they actually had to go to by the time uh, Jesus was celebrating this last supper with his disciples. When he entered Jerusalem, they were on constant edge that he would be arrested and executed, which he ultimately was, but before he had a chance to celebrate this Passover with his disciples. So you almost have this cloak and dagger uh, situation where he, <laughs> he tells his disciples just enough for them to do what they need to do. You're going to go into the city, you're going to go find a man with a jar of water. He's going to take you to his house and you're going to tell him the teacher asks where is the room. So continuing on in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we don't have, we have some limited description of what the Passover was like from the four different Gospels. Of course, we have the original Exodus account of things that were a part of the Passover, but we still have a a somewhat limited view. Now, looking back at some of the the first and early um, century rabbinical writings, we get a, a little bit more of a picture of what a first century Passover may have looked like. And so, uh, for reference, we'll we'll go through some of those. 
There were pre-meal activities. They would come in, they would wash their hands. There were certain elements of the meal that would have been eaten um, in advance. They would take like some lettuce or some celery, dip it in some salt water or some vinegar. This was the, the dipping of the carpas. This was a, a way to visually show part of the Exodus story. This is when Joseph's brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. They took his coat, dipped it in the blood of a lamb, and sent it back to his, his father and, and made up this lie that he had been killed. And so this is a way in the Passover to help retell that story. And some of the historical accounts indicate by that time, there were likely um, four cups that would have been raised up throughout the Passover feast, where the host would have put wine into a cup, raised it up, said a blessing, taken a drink, passed it around the group. And each of those cups, it's said, had a different name to commemorate a different portion of the Passover meal. It was a cup of sanctification, a cup of plagues, a cup of redemption, and a cup of praise or thanksgiving. A blessing was said. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. And there were questions, Passover questions and answered, uh, about the features of the meal that the children or the youngest member would ask. And if you remember in Exodus twelve twenty six, that instruction, and when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean? So that had been incorporated into this series of, of uh, several questions that were likely asked. What makes this night different from all others? Why do we only eat unleavened bread tonight? Why do we eat the bitter herbs? These were questions that throughout the years, one generation had been able to tell the story of the Passover to the next generation. At this point, they probably would read a, a psalm, like Psalm 113. Repeat again the, the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. And then the main meal was held. Now, one of those four cups likely came after the main meal. This was the third cup, called the cup of redemption. And this is where Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, this is after the meal, just after the meal. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is taking that Passover story and reinterpreting it through the events that were about to happen, his blood that was to be shed on the cross the following day. See, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is called and identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is able to take this story that's been told for over 1,400 years in remembrance of how God had delivered his people and been faithful 
and show that it had been pointing to and leading up to the Messiah that would come, that would shed his blood as the true lamb, as a faithful witness to how God would deliver his people from the judgment of sin, not just the, the tyranny and judgment of a worldly empire. And so you think about the, the beauty of this. Jesus could have just given his followers some instruction, some teaching. And he, and he, does, he does that. And parts of the Gospel of John kind of recount some of his teaching on that last night in greater detail. He could have just given them that. Or he could have just eaten a meal with them without any instruction. But the beauty of it is he does both. He gives them both teaching to hang on to, some verbal proclamation, and he also gives them a visible and tangible expression of what's about to happen. That his blood would be shed, the, lamb, the blood of the lamb would be shed for their sin. So we had that question earlier. What is communion? Communion, I believe, is a visible and tangible expression of Christ's death because of our sin. It's a visible and tangible expression of Christ's death for our sin. It's not a means of salvation. There's nothing magic about drinking or eating anything in particular, but when those actions are the fruit of a changed heart, God says it's a powerful witness to his glory and his redemptive act. Short time later, so Jesus is he's executed the following day. And then three days after that, he rises from the grave this is the heart of the gospel, his death and resurrection, his death for our sin, his raising from the grave to conquer sin and death. Okay, it's the heart of our gospel. And he, he, he's around his followers up until Pentecost. And then he ascends into heaven, and from that day forward, the church is born. And the church then faithfully follows Jesus' commands and they remember his sacrifice through the sharing of the bread, the sharing of the cup, to commemorate and remember his death for their sin. Now they weren't without their faults, they, just like we, time can carry on. They can forget some of the importance of some of these, these events. We talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians, one of the things that Paul writes to the church is how they have forgotten some of the, the proper ways to observe this Lord's Supper. And so from time to time, they, just like we, need correction
But for 2,000 years, from that day to now, the church, on a regular basis, has gotten together and celebrated, whether it's called communion or the Lord's Supper, in some traditions they call it Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving. Those are all uh, words and names that have some biblical basis. The church, for over 2,000 years, has got together to celebrate this on a regular basis. There's no specific command on how often it should be celebrated. The, uh, Paul just says, for as often as you eat and drink, eat the bread and drink the cup, repeating Jesus' commands, he said, for as often as you do that, do this in remembrance of me. So some churches will do it weekly. Other churches, uh, like ours, will do it monthly. Some do it quarterly. Some do it daily. So there's a lot of freedom in there in terms of how often it's done. There's no uh, specific command other than being a, a faithful Christ follower as to who may administer it. So there's a lot of freedom there. Some churches call it an ordinance, which is a, a command. Others may describe it as a, a sacrament. But the main point, the main command is to do this in remembrance, with, in remembrance of Christ's death and to examine oneself before you do it. So somehow it's easy for us, just like it was for the first century church, sometimes to forget some of those main points and focus on secondary points. And I don't want to minimize any of the controversies that can and have occurred throughout church history, but let's keep the main point the main point. Communion is done remember Christ's blood that was shed for our sin. The emphasis is on remembrance. Remembrance that leads to self-examination. Remembrance that leads to service and action. And remembrance that leads to hope. You recall Christ's words, I will not eat and drink again of the fruit of the vine until I do so in the kingdom of God. So while it remembers, his, it gives his followers something to remember his death on the cross by, it also gives them something to look forward to. That one day, Christ will come again, according to the Bible. And his kingdom will come and be fully expanded in our world. Justice will be done. True love, true peace will be here. All wrongs will be done away with. And that is hope to the church of Jesus Christ. So what is communion and how does, how does it impact our, our everyday life? Well, Again, communion is that visible and tangible expression of Christ's blood that was shed for our sin. Because sometimes when words are difficult to get out, sometimes it's healthy and healing to be able to do something to express what Christ has done for us. So even the taking of the bread 
drinking of the cup, we can find healing. So what are some points of application as, as we close? Well, number one, communion leads us to self-reflection. Okay, communion leads us to self-reflection. One of Paul's um, commands, additional commands in 1 Corinthians, was to reflect... 1 Corinthians 11.27, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, so the first application is for self-examination. What sin do we bring and what garbage do we bring here that in the busyness of your everyday life, not being able to go 30 seconds without getting an email or a phone call or seeing something on the news or checking, checking Facebook or whatever it is. All this clutter and noise that drowns out any self-reflection and self-examination throughout the week. You come to a time now, a celebration in the company of others, where we all can bring the garbage in our hearts and the sin forward and appreciate that Christ has died and shed his blood for that. That there are ways in our own hearts where our hearts have been hardened like Pharaoh's hearts have been hard, had, had been hardened. And we can, we can bring that and confess that. It also, in self-examination, allows you and me to bring our own stories to God. And so just as God had used an evil thing that had happened to the Hebrews that they were enslaved, and he was able to redeem that story and make that be a faithful testimony to his love throughout generations and generations, and just how God was able to use the execution of his son, a terrible thing, and redeem that and make that a, a, uh, an element of the, the gospel, that, that people would be saved by that, by faith in that, and that would be a faithful testimony for believers generation to generation. So too God can use whatever's happened in your life and redeem that in a way that no one else can. Redeem whatever has happened to you at some point, even if it's difficult to see now, at some point to be a testimony of his faithfulness to you. So number one, application, self-examination. Number two, it's a call to service and action. One of the things that the, the, uh, the Apostle John writes about when he's recounting the Last Supper is how Jesus, they all show up for this meal, and Jesus, of all people, starts washing their feet. So as an example of how we can serve others, communion calls us to action, it calls us to service, and that can be in any number of different ways for different people. For some people, that may be running for, uh, for Team World Vision. 
For other people, there's, there's any host of ways that will impact you throughout the week that you may have a chance to serve others and be called to act. Remembrance is a call to action. And finally, it gives us hope. Communion is not just looking back on what Christ has done through his shed blood. It is looking forward to the day he will come again. Death will be eliminated. Sin will be dealt with. So when we come together, it's not the condition of the drink, whether it's wine or juice, it's the condition of our hearts. It's not what we call the celebration, whether it's communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist, it's what you call Jesus. Is he your Savior? Do you have faith that through his death, through his resurrection, your heart and your life have been supernaturally changed? And in celebrating this rite, every generation of Jesus' followers sees itself as a people who were sitting with him at that final meal and later at the foot of the cross. And one day, at a banquet yet to come in his new kingdom. I'd like to close by, uh, by reading a poem that you'll find on the back of your notes here. This was uh, somewhat of a modern hymn put, put to music, and I just have the words here that I'd like to share with you. This is by one of my uh, most favorite Christian writers, D.A. Carson and, uh, and Mark Hopper. A shocking thing, this that we should forget, the Savior who gave up his life, to turn from the cross indifferent and let our minds veer towards self-love and strife. This table, this rite, is habit, and yet Christ's words pierce our shame like a knife. While breaking the bread, the Lord Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Enamored with power, surrounded by praise, we set out ecclesial plans. Efficiency hums, and we spend our days defending, promoting our stands. Techniques multiply, our structures amaze. The gospel slips out of our hands. While breaking the bread, the Lord Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, remember, remember the cross. From my side issued water and blood. This was no accident. I bore the wrath of my God. Remember my bed, the dark cattle shed, though glory was all my domain. Remember the years of service and tears, that climax and lashings and pain. By God's own decree, your guilt fell on me, and all of my loss was your gain. While breaking the bread, the Lord Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my tears, Gethsemane's fears. Recall that my followers fled. That I was betrayed, disowned and arraigned, the prince of life crucified, dead. Remember your shame, your sin and your blame. Remember the blood that I shed. While lifting the cup, the Savior spoke up. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So now when we eat, this feast simply spread. I blush, I forget to recall. For this, right, this, for this quiet rite means once more we've fed on bread that gave life once for all. Memorial feast, just wine, broken bread, in time to reflect on Christ's call. While breaking the bread, the Lord Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. While lifting the cup, the Savior spoke up, do this in remembrance of me. Father God, uh, we have a chance here for, for those who are uh, followers of you to come and celebrate something that's a visible and tangible expression of what your son did for us. His death for our sin, his shed blood is the one true lamb to cover over our sin. So Father, I just thank you for that awesome privilege that's been passed down from generation to generation of Jesus' followers. Father, I pray you prepare our hearts that we leave all the garbage. Um, we leave it here. We bring it to you. We know that your blood was shed for it. So I prepare, um, pray for the examination of our own hearts. Um, and Father, we just praise and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a moment, the band will play, and we have... Um, some folks up here that can serve the communion. If this is new to you, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if your heart has not been supernaturally changed by his death and resurrection, feel free. This is a time to observe. This is a, uh, this is a time for Jesus' followers. Okay, I don't, there's no, um, yeah, that's, Simply put, this is, this is for people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, if that's not you yet, that's, that's fine. Um, but I encourage you, if that's not you yet, to come talk with somebody. Talk with me. Talk with somebody else, uh, maybe who invited you here about that. Because one day my hope would be that you too would have a heart changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and you too would be able to participate in this act that has been done for over 2,000 years by Jesus' followers. Thank you. Thank you, Leah and Van. That's one of my favorite hymns. Um, this concludes our service. I pray that celebration of communion would impact your week as you remember the shed blood of our Savior, as you pause for points of self-reflection as you bring your story to Jesus, who alone can redeem it in a way that nobody else can. I pray that it calls you to action and service. I pray that it gives you hope, hope for the future. So thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week.